Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Our main focus really at the health department, there will be education to let folks know, you know, that using marijuana and driving is, is not a safe idea. There will be broader education for the public, but our big focus as it's been for tobacco is going to be on youth. Hi everybody, I'm Fran Spielman and with me is the doctor. The doctor is in the house, Dr. Allison Arwitty, the health commissioner of the city of Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What'd you have for breakfast this morning? I want to know if you ate, ate healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Scrambled eggs, what I have almost every morning. Okay. You were in the center of controversy this week uh, on the hot seat at city council budget hearings about the mental health clinics. This is a topic that we have been grappling with in Chicago ever since Rahm Emanuel closed the clinics. And the mayor's plan doesn't include clinic openings. Why not? So... When Mayor Lightfoot took office, she really asked us to talk to folks in the community and to understand what our needs were in the mental health area. And honestly, we engaged dozens and dozens and dozens of people across Chicago who work in this space. And what we heard was that we needed a plan that went well beyond opening a handful of city-run clinics. We needed a plan that thought about bringing mental health services out of clinics uh, to people who need it and are never going to walk through the doors of a clinic. We heard about the need to increase capacity in our own existing clinics, which are still you know, not seeing the number of patients that I think they could be with additional investments, but also to think about uh, bricks and mortar clinics in neighborhoods that uh, may have wait lists now that could see more people, how to quickly bring services there. We needed to think about linking people who are victims of violence and their families to mental health. And we needed to think about system coordination. Uh, really, the public health department, that's the primary role that we play best for health issues all over the city. We've not done it before in mental health. And so, really, the mayor said, give us a plan that addresses youth, addresses these issues, has lots of community involvement, and puts equity at the center. And so I think the framework um, that's been put forward, the mayor's framework for mental health equity, addresses all of that and goes well beyond uh, opening clinics. Can we afford to open the clinics? Is it about money? So, or is it about something else? Honestly, it's about getting more services to more people more quickly. Um, it's not as much a matter of funding. Certainly, this was a difficult deficit year, right? And I think it's a sign of the mayor's commitment to mental health that this is a $9.3 million new investment in mental health. It's more than a doubling um, of what the Chicago Department of Public Health has had in the corporate budget previously to work on mental health issues. Um, and really, 
we said there are 178,000 people in Chicago who, you know, by our own surveys last year, um, said I needed mental health care in the last year and I didn't get it. We then follow up and we say, why didn't you get mental health care? Um, there's four big reasons that come up. Number one, people say, I did not know where to go to get mental health care. They say, I was worried about not being able to afford it. I was worried that my insurance wouldn't cover it. Or I was worried about stigma or what people might think if I seek mental health care. All four of those reasons point to the lack of a system of mental health care. And so when we're thinking about the investments that need to be made, I'm most interested and the mayor's most interested in meeting the needs that you know the data show us are there. So how does she do that? Because this, the clinic closings became a symbol for this city of Rahm Emanuel's misplaced priorities. And it was taken by the union whose jobs, you know, whose members were uh, lost their jobs in this. And really, they ran with it. And so it became this symbol. How do you convince people that this approach is better? Yeah, so it's a great question. And this is the conversations that we've been having really for months um, all over town. People feel strongly about this issue, and they should. You know, I'm a doctor. I see patients every Monday night in clinic. I'm seeing patients with depression and anxiety and PTSD and domestic violence. Lots of them have um, concerns about income and insurance, immigration status. Um, I know that their stories are like the stories that people all over Chicago have had. And when those clinics were closed, um, I didn't, you know, I was not at the Chicago Department of Public Health at the time, but I've certainly looked to understand, you know, what, what that looked like. And I think um, certainly, you know, the main thing that was driving that was the loss of state funding. Um, the health department had lost 90% of the state funding for mental health. Um, but I do know that absolutely, you know, people fell through the cracks. Um, and I don't want to make excuses, you know, for the way that that was done. You know, that said, I also want to have a new conversation moving forward about what our needs are, what our gaps are in terms of uh, getting mental health to people in Chicago. And I think when you really sit down, this isn't just a Chicago Department of Public Health plan. It's been a citywide plan informed by, you know, dozens and dozens of people. All the leading organizations pretty much in town that work in this space have had an opportunity to give input. And they said, if you want to do mental health right, um, let's think about scale. Our five clinics that the Chicago Department of Public Health operates today um, are full of amazing, dedicated clinicians. Um, we're committed to supporting them. Right now, they see about 2,500 patients total per year across the clinics. So when I look at for Almost all five across all five so we it's average not that many is it's not it? that many we average just under 500 patients per clinic and so when I think about needing to address uh, you know the mental health gap of hundred and eighty thousand people I'm less interested in replicating that at this point um, and saying, you know, do I think about investing this to serve another two or 3,000 people, or do I think about investing in some of the neighborhoods where there are mental health providers that are publicly funded already, uh, that provide services on a sliding scale that goes to zero, but may have wait lists, may need to expand services to see more people. So we are certainly investing in our five uh, CDP 
MPH clinics, I want us to be serving more than 2,500 people. Um, but if we're going to come anywhere near reaching that, we need to think much bigger. And so this is an opportunity simply to reach more people more effectively and to bring services out of clinics. So it would have been politically expedient for the mayor to reopen the clinics and then the debate would be over. The but it wouldn't have served, you're saying, the people who fell through the cracks. That's right. I think, you know, the most important thing, um, what the mayor cares about, what I care about, is doing the right thing for mental health access in Chicago. And I think this is about using the precious city resources that we have in the best way to get mental health services where they're most needed. We'll be directing them to the neighborhoods of greatest need, and we'll be directing them towards some new populations that we've never focused on before. Um, our current city clinics don't serve youth, don't serve adolescents. Uh, the mayor said, I absolutely want a plan that has a focus on youth mental health as a piece of this. And so some of the work that we'll be supporting will be youth and adolescent focused um, mental health services. We've never previously had significant work linking um, people who are victims of violence to our mental health care system. I want to get rid of every barrier there that we can. So we'll be investing in 20 what we're calling trauma-informed centers of care across the neighborhoods of greatest need. Five of those clinics will be our existing CDPH clinics. The other 15 will be uh, publicly funded or nonprofit uh, clinics that will meet particular requirements, but one of them is going to be around really lowering the barriers and making it easy for our violence prevention programming work, which there are also increased investments in, really making sure folks at the time they most need it can link to mental health care. Also, where you think about greatest needs, I think about the population that are have mental health challenges that, that, that are really serious. They may be off medications, may be homeless, um, really are not going to keep a 10 a.m. appointment on a Monday at a bricks and mortar clinic. So for the first time, the city will be su supporting um, some evidence-based outreach services that bring services from clinics out to individuals uh, who most need it. So right now, you know, I know folks have probably seen people who have really serious mental health issues issues on the streets in Chicago. We know that how those people get care right now most of the time is either there's a crisis. So Chicago Police Department or Chicago Fire Department may pick those folks up, may bring them to a hospital emergency department. Usually a few hours later, they're back out on the street again. There are better ways to reach these people. It is a, a resource intensive approach, but we think it's important. And then without system coordination, you know, we can't link folks. Like I, what I've found, you know, in talking to Alderman, um, in talking to concerned folks in Chicago, there's not been, I think, a, a great understanding about the resources that do exist uh, around mental health today in Chicago. We have more than 100, well more than 100, publicly funded clinics that get extra funding from the federal government uh, specifically to serve um, underserved communities that have to provide uh, care to people, regardless of insurance status, regardless of immigration status, on a sliding scale that goes down to zero. So last year, CDPH's five clinics saw about 2,500 people. Across the network of the federally qualified health centers, that's what they're known, they saw more than 60,000 people for mental health services here in Chicago. We've got another 60 um, nonprofit, uh, what are called community mental health centers, that are also really focused on these populations of need. But we've never had a good system that actually pulls together these resources 
resources. So I want one number that somebody who has mental health questions or concerns can call, talk to a mental health professional, and then get connected to care in their neighborhoods. It's you talked in, in your testimony, and it was lengthy, mm-hmm. about the life expectancy gap yes. in Chicago. It's staggering, really. It is. Nine-year difference between being black in Chicago and being white. That's amazing. Why is that, and what are you going to do about it? Yeah, so this is really the primary focus of the Chicago Department of Public Health. Uh, We are putting together our plan right now. We're calling it Healthy Chicago 2025. It's our next five-year plan, and it is absolutely laser-focused on the racial life expectancy gap. As you said, 8.8 years. There are five main drivers of that life expectancy gap. The first one is chronic disease, and that's everything cardiovascular disease, heart disease, diabetes, largely driven by obesity, um, smoking, but a lot of that is really about what are the health like in neighborhoods, right? What kind of access do people have to food and to safe neighborhoods for exercise? What are our root causes there around thinking about people's education opportunities, um, employment opportunities, but chronic disease is about half of that gap. So that's one main focus. Number two for that black-white life expectancy gap is homicide. So the focus, uh, again, on violence prevention and new investments in that space. There's tons to do. Mayor, as you know, it's her top priority. Number three is infant mortality. And so we're launching a number of new things at the health department. One of them is going to be a new home visiting service that we'll be offering hopefully universally eventually across the city so that a nurse is seeing a mom um, and a family and a new baby in the hospital and then doing a home visit about three weeks later. How is One home visit? Initially one home visit. The goal is not to do the extended home visiting that we know that there are a lot of other actually programs that you can connect to. It's recognizing that most families, 94% of families who have a new baby have a pro, you know, have some need in those first few weeks, connecting them to those other resources. The health department, again, really our best role is as this system coordinator. And so we can, we can have more visits if we need them, but the main goal is to work on this transition from hospital to home, make sure that we're not, again, missing people, letting them fall through the cracks, that we're following up and making sure mom and baby and the family are connected to medical care and we're addressing those medical needs, but also to any other social need that they may have. So there's more around that. That's number three. Number four is still about HIV and other infectious diseases. So that's where you're going to be hearing a lot about our Getting to Zero campaign. We have a plan to end the HIV epidemic in Chicago by 2030. It's amazing, and I think we're going to do it. We'll get down to a place where we're going to have fewer than 100 transmissions a year. That's our goal, and we have very specific plans to meet What are you going to do different? So two main things. We're going to be number— Particularly in the black community where that's that's still a very big problem. It is, yes. And again, this is where the whole—you know, because we're focused on this uh, racial life expectancy gap— the priority populations here for for HIV especially are black and Latinx, uh, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. It's black cisgendered women and it's transgender women of color. Those are the those are the groups where we have not seen as much of a decrease as we'd like to in HIV. So there's two big things. Number one, we need people on HIV medications. HIV medications are good enough now that if you're taking, if you're in medical care and you're taking your medications every day, 
your virus gets suppressed in your body to the point you cannot spread HIV sexually. But fewer than half of the people with HIV in Chicago today are actually in care and on their medications. So we need to- How can they afford the medications? They're free. So anybody with HIV, we have amazing programs that they get every medication for free. We actually support housing for people who have HIV. So what are you gonna do different to get at that population in yeah. the black community, particularly in the Hispanic community that still- Yeah, so, so we've just released almost 40, million, $40 $41 million um, of money that is going out to uh, community-based organizations with a particular focus on those uh, that serve um, black and Latinx communities. 86% of the clients um, served uh, are black or Latinx. 82% of our housing clients are black or Latinx. We're keeping it right in that space. That's where the focus is. Um, but we're really, there are these uh, care hubs that are being developed so that if you have HIV, you can have one place that you go to get your medications, but also to get your housing needs met, to get your, um, your uh, you know, food needs met, to get education needs that might be there met. Um, really thinking about this comprehensive work. The other thing, though, is PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. There's also now, if you are HIV negative, but at high risk for HIV, um, you may have have a partner who's HIV positive or other risk factors, you can take one pill once a day with virtually no side effects and be 99% protected from HIV. So we're also thinking about bringing these services to people who are HIV negative, but high risk for HIV. So if we can, by 2030, get the number of folks who are taking pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP up by 20%, and we can get our percentage of people with HIV up by 20%, we will effectively end HIV. What about recreational marijuana? Do you have any concerns about that and what it'll mean to the number of kids who show up in school high? Yeah, so certainly with recreational marijuana becoming legal in Illinois in January 1st, the health department and you know departments across the city have been doing a lot of work and a lot of thinking about this. I was on a call yesterday with CPS talking exactly about this, about what is our planning like? What is the education gonna be? What kind of services um, are they thinking about putting in place? And they're doing a lot of work already, thinking about screening and how to refer um, you know kids to treatment, for example, if there are issues with this. From the health department standpoint, I'm especially interested in making sure that we have the systems in place to monitor um, any health effects that we're seeing related to this. So we'll be adding uh, questions to some of the big surveys that we do. We'll be looking at data from people who come in through emergency departments, uh, potentially reporting problems. Well, what are you worried about? What are you worried about? And what should CPS do when a kid shows up? I mean, what are you worried about? Yeah, so we're worried about the fact that really all substances, marijuana included, have major impacts on brains that are still developing. So we know that brains, you know, are developing up until people are around the age of 25. Um, and people who have heavy, especially substance use during that time period, absolutely can have impacts on the developing brain. So our main focus really at the health department, there will be education to let folks know, you know, that using marijuana and driving is, is not a safe idea. There will be broader education for the public, but our big focus at 
as it's been for tobacco, is going to be on youth and making sure um, that kids, their families, their teachers, their pediatricians um, understand some of the risks that go along uh, with marijuana use and those developing brains. Um, also, there are there's edibles, for example. Yeah. Edibles, you know. We saw something this week, didn't yes, we? Yes, right. And if you think about, you know, edibles being in gummy candies or in brownies, um, those are things that can be very attractive to young children in particular. So thinking about uh, safety, keeping these edibles, you know, very much away from children. Um, we're interested in ways to um, use legal methods, uh, enforcement methods, uh, and other methods, um, not just education, to really make sure that as much as possible, these products are not near young children. It's, it's, it's going to be a lift. Um, but I, we've, we, we've done this well in the tobacco space here in Chicago. As you know, we saw really good improvements in terms of cigarette smoking. We were down to 6% of our teenager cigarette smoking. Now this increase in vaping, that is also part of this conversation. Um, it's a new approach. This is a big industry with money behind it. Our main goal is thinking about um, safety, um, especially for our youth uh, in this space. Is there anything you want CPS to do? So CPS already has good plans and programs in place, thinking about some of the best ways to teach kids in a developmentally appropriate way um, about um, sort of a strengths-based, you know, a strengths-based approach to um, resisting peer pressure, this sort of, this sort of uh, work. And we're in active conversations with them, you know, about, about, about what? What do you like, want? for example, um, we for tobacco, uh, we had done things like lunchroom takeovers, right, where you sort of come into a high school lunchroom um, and it's not sort of the officials from the health department coming. You're identifying youth who want to be uh, health advocates within schools who can uh, talk about some of the, um, you know, some of the concerns related to marijuana, um, you know, as we've done around tobacco. So that's an example of something the health department may do in place. But they but you may recall recruit kids to talk to other kids yeah. kids who are in the school then yeah. we may we, we we know that you know often won't youth they, are some of our some of our best advocates but there. won't they be left out of the lunchroom i don't think so you know our goal is to really make sure that we're sharing um that we're sharing data and that we're sharing uh information and so i want kids to know about the dangers of driving for example after marijuana use like they know about drink you know drunk driving i i know that that's probably not a message that's got out you know that's gotten out well um the risks especially of using a lot of marijuana you know are are real um and and, and frankly, there are methods around screening. Uh, CPS is, you know, is looking, for example, you know, are there high schools where we're seeing more substance use issues? What can you do around making sure that not just the counselor, but, you know, the deans or the principals or others know how to do appropriate screening? And if they identify kids with substance use issues, not just marijuana, any substance use issues, they know how to connect them uh, to substance use care. So CPS is absolutely on board with this, um, and it's it's going to be part of our plan. But you're worried about it. What's the threat that when recreational marijuana becomes legal, what, what are you afraid of? Um, so I'm concerned that we're going to see a lot of use of it potentially in youth. Um, that is my biggest concern. Um, I want to make sure also that, uh, for example, the things that we've put in place around um, uh, smoke-free workplaces around tobacco, I want to see those in place um, around marijuana use. Um, and I want to limit 
you know, limit potential harm. So that's going to be, a, I think, primarily youth-based. But I want everyone to know uh, really what the evidence shows in terms of um, marijuana. And what's tricky, of course, is because this is not um, legal at a federal level, we don't necessarily have as much of the research available, right, mm-hmm. as we do for a lot of other substances, which is why as the health department, having some of these basics of data monitoring and really looking at outcomes and sharing that with other states and other jurisdictions that have legal marijuana is going to be really important so that we have good data. You know, I, as a doctor, as a public health professional, my main goal is to make sure the messages that we're sharing are based in data, are based in evidence. Um, And I don't want an industry to be driving that conversation. I want those to be health-focused messages. So that's what we'll be developing. And what about vaping? I mean, the mayor talked about uh, banning the flavored... Uh, and we haven't seen that, but how? Wh- what's happening with that? Yeah, so once again, we have a very particular focus on youth here. Um, so those flavors are things in a lot of cases like cotton candy or gummy bear. Um, a lot of those flavors are absolutely aimed at youth. And, you know, our goal is to keep another generation from getting hooked on nicotine, right? Which um, a lot of people don't even realize most of these vaping products have large amounts of nicotine in them. Um, they are absolutely addictive. And what we see is that youth are starting with vaping. You know, our, our numbers of vaping in Chicago public schools and around the country have long since eclipsed um, the numbers of kids that we now see cigarette smoking, and flavors are a big part of that. So we're really interested in looking at flavors in general. Big Tobacco has used flavors to target not just youth, but other communities, Um, and some of the disparities I think that we see are around that flavor profile. So the mayor has interest in doing this. Aldermen have interest in doing this. There's going to be ongoing conversations, and, you know, I'm really really interested to see what we're we're able to do in this space. We, We need input from everybody to make sure that the plans that we put forward, um, you know, match match the needs and match the concerns. But we're not done talking about vaping for sure. Another concern in in the health disparity or the life expectancy disparity is obesity. Mm-hmm. Yep. and healthy food. Uh, yep. What what do you do about that? And where are we on obesity? Yeah, so we're actually turning the corner in terms of youth obesity. We'll be releasing some data. Um, in Chicago we are? In Chicago we are, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll be releasing some data shortly that uh, has has um, some real, finally, some positive progress in terms of youth obesity. Um, obviously, it's a huge concern. Um, that chronic disease that I pointed to that does drive half of the racial life expectancy gap in Chicago, um, those chronic diseases are largely driven by obesity and by tobacco. And when we think about that, you know, a lot of it is about what sorts of environments are folks in. Are they able to access So how are we food? turning the corner? Where? How? Yeah. So this is about, um, we have, as part of the Healthy Chicago 2025 um, plan, um, we're pulling together groups um, around the city to talk about things like healthy food access, to talk about safe neighborhoods, uh, to pull not just the health department, but to pull in um, other departments, and then frankly, other partners across the city you know the there there are a lot of there are a lot of folks working in this space i want to make sure that we're doing what we can to bring those options use the data again to bring um to bring healthy food
food options where we haven't seen them. The health department runs um, something, women, infant, and children. It's a supplemental nutrition program, um, which you, you may know it's called WIC. It's a federal program. Um, and every day we've got folks working with some of the um, families that especially that have young children um, or people, women who are pregnant or um, have kids up to five. Um, and, you know, we've very explicitly thought about uh, where those clinics are, what those services look like, um, have worked to try to change even some of the technology there, making it much easier for people to get, you know, not have the coupons, think about using more cards. Um, how do we really decrease stigma around people who may need food support? Like this is Chicago. But you said we're mm -hmm. turning the corner. Are yes. kids getting thinner? Um, so we're, what we're seeing is reverse, certainly some pausing in terms of that dramatic increase that we've seen in terms of youth obesity. And we are just starting to see some decrease. So again, why do you think? Why? I think because I think it's a mix of things. I think there's been first, you know, a lot of awareness around this. I think if you look at some of the um, healthier policies that were put in place, I mean, everything from sort of school lunch um, to thinking about making farmers markets part of SNAP to thinking about how do we um, have more safety in communities in ways that can promote exercise, thinking about bike lane access, thinking about um, active transportation. Um, you know, this is multifactorial, but as the health department, we're really interested in the environments in which folks are living. And so I think each of these things, you know, by themselves don't do it, but there's certainly more awareness. I think, you know, we've been pushing back on the soda industry. You know, we've been thinking about um, what, you know, healthy vending machines, you know, there's, there's many, many, many approaches here. Um, certainly with kids, there's opportunities to think about things like healthier children's meals and how are we promoting um, the food that goes to kids. And, you know, again, we're not not done in this space, but I we are um, encouraged, and you know I'll be happy to share with you when we have this report um, coming out shortly. Uh, kids are are where we need to turn this around. We know that obese children frequently you know maintain that obesity into adulthood, and so that's our. Speaking primary of focus. food, you are also charged with inspecting restaurants, we are. Yes. and you hadn't done a very good job of it over the years, or at least your department, not you, oh, but I, but the department didn't do, at least the inspector general has criticized so over the, the years. Yeah, so the inspector general, what the inspector general found a couple of years ago, I was interested in this report, so I read it, was that actually our food inspection program, they gave us kudos for the inspection program, but they said we didn't have enough inspectors um, in terms of reaching folks, and so we've been able to add inspectors and continue to add inspectors. We inspect 18,000 restaurants um, and other food establishments across Chicago, and it's actually really one of the strongest programs at the Chicago Department of Public Health. Um, some of what we've done in the space of, you know, not having as many resources as we would like, we've done things like put a food predictive model in place where we look to see prior violations, um, all sorts of other factors that helped us prioritize those inspections. And we've actually won awards for some of the ways in which we've used that model and brought in other technology, look to see people, you know, writing on Twitter or Facebook, you know, complaining they got food poisoning ways to connect those in and more quickly get out to stop foodborne outbreaks. So I'm actually really proud of the work that our, our food inspection program does. Cervical cancer 
is 39% higher in Chicago than the rest of the nation. Why? We so, just learned that this week. Yeah, so our big focus, again, from a prevention standpoint, um, is on the HPV vaccine there. So the human papillomavirus vaccine is our best vaccine against cancer. Um, and we want it routinely uh, being offered and accepted uh, you know, to, to children um, and to adolescents. And um, we've done work just in this, in this past couple of years to really increase. We did a big uh, education campaign with um, pediatricians, actually, at the health department and saw good increases in terms of that HPV vaccine offering um, an uptake. It's it's absolutely the best preventive, um, the preventive option that we have. Along with that, we want to increase the rates of uh, cervical cancer screening, pap smears, um, working with partners to do that. Um, there's a new coalition coming together. You may have seen we're a part of that looking at data and where to put resources. But, you know, cervical cancer, um, is largely uh, a preventable disease. If we can get good vaccination, girls and boys, people should be getting this, you know, at, 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 as, as children. And we want parents to be asking for it, and we want pediatricians to be offering it. Before we go, what is your exercise routine? If you're, <laughs> and we're going to check to see if you're really healthy. So I, I ride, I have, I have a, a, a Peloton, I have a stationary bike in my home, and I really like it, and I ride it, I try to ride it actually every single day. How many minutes? Um, 30 minutes a day. That's Work the up recommended. A sweat. Yes, exactly. I, All I right, try, we're, yep, we're to gonna stay on you to make <laughs> sure you're healthy and leading by example. <laughs> Absolutely. Dr. Allison Arwadi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week.